Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Today's podcast is also sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's always better to be careful, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com gold and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Investors are once again being lulled into a false sense of security regarding inflation and the Fed's apparent success at reducing the rate. This morning, we got the release of the October producer price index. And if you remember, when we got the CPI for October and that came out lower than expectations, it sparked a huge rally in the stock market. And the same thing happened, at least initially, when we got the release of the producer prices, which also came out below expectations. And when it comes to inflation, lower is better. The consensus estimate was for a 0.5% increase in producer prices over the month, and that would have followed a 0.4% rise in the prior month. But instead, we got an increase of just 0.2%. Not only was that well below what the consensus had forecast, but it was below the low ends of the range of forecasts which went from a low of 0.3 to a high of 0.5. The year-over-year number also coming in below expectations, as you would expect. The prior month, it was 8.5%. The expectation was for a drop to 8.3, but we dropped all the way down to 8.0, matching the low end of the range. If you strip out food and energy, the so-called core, they were looking for an increase of 0.4, which actually would have been a bit hotter than the 0.3 from the prior month. Instead, we got zero, 
no increase at all, the way Joe Biden would describe it, no inflation, the end of inflation. The consensus estimate was from an increase of 0.2 to 0.4, so well below the low end of that range. And again, the year-over-year core, which was supposed to be up 7.2, which would have matched the 7.2 from the prior month. Instead, it was only up 6.7%. And if you X out food, energy, and trade services, the rise was just 0.2, half of the 0.4 that was expected. And the year-over-year rate declined to 5.4% from 5.6%. Now, of course, all of these are still strong numbers, with the exception of the X food and energy month over month, which was flat. But just looking at the increases, we still have a big inflation problem, even if these numbers seem to indicate that the inflation problem is going away. It's not. But the markets are keying in on this data, and the knee-jerk reaction was an immediate rise in the S&P futures. And in fact, by the time the markets opened for trading, we did have a 450-point rally in the Dow. Now, intraday, the Dow ended up surrendering all of that rally. I think at one point, it might have gone to down a couple of hundred before closing with a gain of about 56 points. The Nasdaq, though, had a bigger rise. It was up 1.27%. Russell 2000 up 1.5%. And the S&P 500 up almost 0.9%. So most of the index is still getting a lift from this supposed progress that is being made on inflation. And again, all of this supposedly is going to give the Fed cover to pivot. If not outright pivot, do the soft pivot that I've been talking about, which is dialing back the degree of hawkishness, how many rate hikes are coming, how large those hikes are going to be, and how long the Fed is going to have to leave those rate hikes in place before it can reverse the process and start going back down. But any apparent progress that the Fed has made in reducing inflation is only temporary. It will not last. One of the ways you know this is by looking at the reaction in the currency market, because while the stock market was rising, the dollar was tanking. At its lows this morning, the dollar index traded all the way down to 105.34. Now remember, 105 is the key level that I've been talking about, and we're almost there. And when the dollar hit that low, that meant the dollar had declined by 8% from its high that it set eight weeks ago. That is a big decline. And here is the irony of what's going on. The more it looks like the Federal Reserve is making progress on bringing inflation back down, the weaker the U.S. dollar gets. It's the weak U.S. dollar that's going to be instrumental in raising the inflation rate back up. So in other words, the Fed is a victim of its own success, even though it's not real success to the extent that the market perceives that there's success, that is sowing the seeds of failure. Because as I've been explaining on this podcast, one of the main reasons that U.S. inflation hasn't been much higher, other than the fact that we lie about it in the official statistics, has been the relative strength of the dollar. Not in absolute sense, because the dollar is obviously losing purchasing power, but in foreign exchange markets, on a relative basis, it has been extremely strong until the last eight weeks against all the other currencies in the world, and that has helped diminish the impact that inflation has on prices. Because as inflation was driving prices up, the relative strength of the dollar was pushing them back down. And so there was an offsetting effect which mitigated the increases. 
The flip side of that, of course, is that in Europe, it's the opposite effect. The weakness in the euro was exacerbating the increase in consumer prices over there because not only did they have to deal with the effects of their own inflation, but they had to deal with the reduced value of the euro in relationship to the dollar. But now that the tables have turned and that the dollar is now falling, now we're going to have to get a taste of our own medicine. We're going to start to see this impact our consumer prices, except it's not going to happen right away. There is going to be a bit of a lag, but by some point, maybe early to mid-2023, the weaker dollar is going to start to show up in higher consumer prices. Number one, it's going to immediately increase our import bill because now we're going to have to pay a lot more to import those products. It's also going to increase the cost of transporting those products to the United States because the weaker dollar is going to drive up both fuel costs and other shipping rates. And of course, all of this has bad implications for U.S. GDP. Remember, the only reason that we got positive GDP in Q3 was because the trade deficit was a lot smaller than it otherwise would have been. And one of the main reasons for that was the strength of the dollar, which brought down the cost of our imports. Now, of course, we also had the ability to export all that oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Of course, we're going to exhaust that at some point, And so we're not going to be able to prop up our trade with Strategic Petroleum Reserves. But once the dollar really starts to fall, that process gets reversed when it comes to cheaper imports. We're going to have to be paying through the nose for those imports. And that is going to subtract from GDP. But it's also going to exert more downward pressure on the economy because of the upward pressure on consumer prices. For example, we got earnings news today out of Walmart. Now, Walmart stock actually jumped quite a bit on the day, rising 6.5% because their earnings beat estimates. But what's more important is not what they reported as earnings, but what they reported as being the driving forces behind those earnings. And if you read their report, it paints a pretty bleak picture of what's going on in the U.S. economy. First of all, Walmart is reporting that one of the reasons that it's having higher sales is because more affluent households are now doing their grocery shopping at Walmart. And these are households with incomes over $100,000. Now, why are more affluent households shopping at Walmart? Well, it's because they can't afford to shop at the more expensive, fancier markets that they used to go to because prices are up so much, in order to put food on their tables, they're having to trade down and buy cheaper stuff at Walmart. Now, the typical Walmart shopper, what they're doing to make do is they're trading down in quality. So the types of food that they're buying are of a lower quality than what they used to buy. So the proteins, instead of buying steak, for example, they buy a hamburger or hot dogs and stuff like that. They find ways to stretch their shrinking dollars. Also, consumers, according to Walmart, are cutting back on the name brands and they're buying more of the generic products. Now, a lot of these products are Walmart's own products, so they probably have higher margin when someone buys a generic than when they do a brand name. And so that's also benefiting Walmart. But one of the things that is hurting Walmart, and they reported on this, is declining overall margins. Because as their customers are having to pay more for food, they have less money left over for other merchandise that they used to buy. And that merchandise 
has a higher markup than food. And of course, it's not just the food that they're buying at Walmart that is more expensive. It's the energy that they have to buy, the gas they have to buy to get to Walmart, the energy cost of heating or air conditioning their homes, as well as their rents or their mortgage payments, their insurance. The cost of living is rising in general. And so discretionary income is falling. And so sales of the types of items that people would buy using their discretionary income, they're also falling. And so that ultimately is bad news for Walmart that maybe was using food as more of a loss leader, although not a loss leader, but trying to get people in the door to buy their groceries. But just while they're there selling them a lot more expensive stuff, well, they can't afford to buy that expensive stuff. And all that expensive stuff is going to get even more expensive now that the U.S. dollar is falling instead of rising. Now, another way that Walmart customers are paying for the food that they're buying is through their credit cards. Because we also got news today from the Federal Reserve that we just had the biggest increase in household credit in 15 years driven by mortgage debt and credit card debt. In fact, the increase in credit card debt is the biggest in 20 years. Household debt now stands at an all-time record high, $16.5 trillion. It's up $1.27 trillion in the last year. Again, a surge in household debt is not a sign of affluence. It's not a sign of a booming economy. You know, a lot of the newspapers that reported on this story online talked about the reason for this is strong demand. American consumers have strong demand, and so they're buying a lot of stuff and they're running up their credit card bills. Well, if we had a strong economy that was behind that strong demand, consumers wouldn't need to use their credit cards to buy stuff. They would buy stuff with the money they earn from their jobs in a strong economy. The fact that consumers have to go into debt to buy shows they can't afford to buy the things they're buying. Now, I think one of the reasons they're going into debt to buy is because they're going into debt to buy food. They need to eat, and the only way they can afford to do it is if they charge it. So this is not a strong economy. This is a weak economy. And as I've explained many times, the evidence of economic strength is a rise in the savings rate. When people are more affluent, they have more savings. They pay off their debt. When times are tough, they dip into their savings and run up the debt. And that is exactly what we're doing right now. But what's also problematic about this surge in mortgage debt and credit card debt is that interest rates are also soaring. So in contrast to what Americans should be doing when rates are rising, which is reducing their debt, because then they would have a lower burden of servicing that debt, American households are going deeper into debt even as the cost of servicing that debt is going up. That means a real economic disaster because we have record high mortgage debt, record high credit card debt, and now the cost of financing that debt is going up. And in fact, I read one report in particular about not credit card debt, but debt that people are running up on their store cards. So these are not the big banks. This is when you get a credit card issued directly by a merchant. So you can only use it at that merchant. Well, the interest rates that those merchants are charging now is, I think, 25%. That is an enormous rate of interest for somebody to buy. If you can't afford to buy something, and so you borrow to buy it instead, and now not only do you have to pay for the product, but you have to pay 25% interest every year to pay for what you bought, that adds up very quickly. And ultimately, the cost is compounded. 
it costs way more to buy an item when interest rates are that high because every four years you're buying the item all over again, even though you've already used it. Now, of course, a lot of the people who are running up this debt are not going to pay it back. They're going to default. They're going to go bankrupt. Yes, the delinquency rates are still low, but the emphasis there is still because these rates are going to rise especially as home equity starts to evaporate because real estate prices are falling, used car values are falling. Again, this is not deflation. This does not mean the Fed is winning on inflation because even though the price of a house is coming down, the cost of owning it is still soaring. Even though the value of a used car is going down, the cost to an American to buy that used car is still going up. But another thing that's very important that nobody is talking about when it comes to this surge in household debt is how this shows that the Federal Reserve is making no headway in its fight against inflation. Because you can't fight inflation if consumers keep going more into debt to buy stuff, because that means that prices are going to keep rising because the demand is still there. Consumers are just making up for their loss in real incomes by going into debt. They're not cutting back their spending. They're borrowing so they can keep spending. What the Fed has to do is raise interest rates sufficiently so that households stop borrowing and stop spending and save instead. That's what needs to happen. We need to have a reduction in consumption and an increase in savings. Because what does that do? A, it takes a demand pressure off of prices, but B, higher savings means there's more investment capital available to expand supply. If people aren't consuming, they're saving, their savings can be invested in plant equipment that will increase future supply. And that's what brings prices down. Less demand, more supply. That's how you fight inflation. But that's not what's happening right now because demand is not falling because credit is still rising. What this proves is that the Fed is losing the fight against inflation. The people who are paying attention to the noise in the consumer price index or the producer price index don't even understand inflation. They have no idea where it came from. They have no idea why it's so bad. And now they think it's going to come down and they're going to be completely shocked when inflation hits new highs. One of the best things you can do for your family is to make sure that their financial interests are secure if you're no longer alive to do it yourself. Unfortunately, a lot of people get talked into buying whole life insurance when what they really need is term. And that's because term life insurance allows you to pay the smallest premium and secure the largest death benefit. That frees up cash, enabling you to make investments that could substantially outperform anything available inside a whole life policy. Plus, you don't need life insurance for the whole of life. You only need it during those years where your loved ones are still financially dependent on you. That allows you to take advantage of the lowest premiums possible while still providing your family with the largest possible death benefit during the very years that they'll need the money the most. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone, a laptop, and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithm work in real time so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved there are no hidden fees and you can cancel any time and if you change your mind in the first 30 days you'll get a full refund ladders policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims and since life insurance costs more as you get older now's the best time to cross it off your list go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved that's l-a-d-d-e-r life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved
Moving on, though, from the government fraud of inflation, I want to discuss the smaller fraud that was pulled off by Sam Bankman-Fried. I spoke about this on my last podcast. Well, the dominoes are really falling. Now, BlockFi on the verge of filing for bankruptcy, already laying off a bunch of workers. In fact, all of the big tech companies are announcing layoffs. This is something that I forecast would happen a long time ago on my podcast. I knew that when the tech bubble popped and stock prices started to fall, that companies would have to find ways of reducing their burn because they can no longer finance losses by selling overpriced stocks. And so all of these layoffs were predictable. I'm surprised that so many people seem to be shocked by the fact that this is going on and this is just getting started. But I also warned that many of these crypto companies were going to go bankrupt and that is exactly what is happening. And the culprit is leverage. And that's also what I said was going to ultimately be the reason that so many of these companies would collapse, not just from their own leverage, but from the leverage of their customers. Many people in the financial community are now pointing to the collapse of crypto as an example of the thing that finally broke, because a lot of people were saying, hey, the Fed is going to tighten until it breaks something. And it finally succeeded. It broke crypto. And now they think, okay, now that crypto is broken, that's going to mark the low and we can rally. No, now that this link has broken, the entire chain is weaker and a lot more links are going to go. This is just like subprime blowing up. Everybody said it's contained to subprime. I said, no, subprime was the weak link in the chain. The entire mortgage market was going to go. Well, that's what they're saying now. This is not contained to crypto. A lot of other industries are going to suffer. There's going to be bankruptcies because everybody was levered up. Crypto was simply the weakest link because crypto probably had the most leverage and the least real value. And of course, as FTX goes bankrupt, a lot of these firms that are connected with FTX are also going bankrupt. It was about one year ago today that Bitcoin hit its record high of 69,000. And as I'm talking now, it's about 16,800, so about a 75% decline. At its lows, I think it was down better than 77%. But what this collapse of FTX shows you is that that entire rally was a fraud, which is exactly what I said in real time. It was all the money that was spent to pump and then dump Bitcoin and other cryptos. But now we know where the money came from to pump it up. It came from stealing money from customers. In addition to leverage, there was no real demand there. There was no real widespread adoption. That's exactly what I was saying. It was all a giant Ponzi, a pyramid, a chain letter propped up by debt. I was watching a CNBC interview with Anthony Pompliano. He was being interviewed by Scott Wapner, and Scott actually was asking all these tough questions of Anthony Pompliano and asking him to accept responsibility for all the bad advice that he gave to investors on CNBC for his constant touting of Bitcoin and how it was going to keep going up and how everybody should buy it and how it was a safe haven and a store of value, and then pointing to these huge losses and how much money people lost following his advice. And Scott was saying, Anthony, aren't you going to apologize to the CNBC viewers? Aren't you going to accept some responsibility for what happened? And all I'm thinking is, what incredible hypocrisy. 
on the part of Scott Wapner because it's CNBC that gave Anthony Pompliano and all the other pumpers the very platform that he's now criticizing Anthony on air for utilizing. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. I think CNBC is far more responsible for the losses than Anthony Pompliano. I mean, Anthony Pompliano, he's a young guy. He got caught up in all the hype. He is a true believer. I get that. I know Anthony. I've talked to him. I've tried to convince him. I've tried to knock some sense into him, but I can't even do it with my own son, so I haven't been able to do it with Anthony. But CNBC is a whole different animal. I think they're far more culpable for having pumped up Bitcoin. The whole time they had Anthony Pompliano on a year ago and everybody else, they never asked him these tough questions back then. I was talking on my podcast all the time about these softball questions that all these Bitcoin pumpers and crypto pumpers got every time they were on CNBC. Nobody ever questioned their objectivity. Nobody ever said, but don't you have a vested interest in the success of Bitcoin? Aren't you in a Bitcoin company? No, it wasn't like when I would go on and I would talk about gold and all I got was, well, you're just shilling for gold. You're just pumping gold. You got a gold company. That's the reason you're bullish on gold. They always questioned my objectivity, but they never once questioned the objectivity or the motives of any of the crypto pumpers that were on their air every single day. And of course, between pumpers, you had advertisements paid for by crypto companies and blockchain companies and Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. One ad after another was pro-Bitcoin. So you had biased anchors asking softball questions to biased guests. Everybody was pumping Bitcoin. And now Scott Wapner has the nerve to try to blame the guests for utilizing the very platform that CNBC rolled out. And what about taking all that advertiser money? That's one of the reasons I think they didn't want guys like me on their air to point any of this out. No, they wanted to keep bringing on guys like Michael Saylor. And they had him on again a couple of days ago in the aftermath of the FTX Sam Bankman Free debacle. And they're still not holding that guy accountable. Although even if they do finally hold him accountable, it's still hypocritical if they don't hold themselves accountable at the same time, which they'll never do. By the way, I have accepted an invitation to deliver the keynote address at the DMCC Dubai Precious Metals Conference during Thanksgiving week. Last year, the keynote was delivered by none other than Michael Saylor himself. And in preparation for what I'm going to say this year, I had to listen to what Michael Saylor said last year. And I couldn't believe how ridiculous his talk was and the fact that he had the nerve to actually deliver this to an audience full of people in the gold industry. But he basically told everybody in that audience that their industry was dead, that there was no reason to own gold, that gold was worthless, that the whole world was going to be getting out of gold and buying Bitcoin and that everybody in attendance should do the same thing. Everybody should sell their gold and buy Bitcoin. Gold had no value. It had no future. Bitcoin was the new gold. One piece of nonsense after another. In a way, it reminded me of when I went to speak at the Western Regional Mortgage Bankers Association in Las Vegas in 2006 to tell them about the impending collapse of the housing market and about the short that we were putting on 
in subprime, I basically went into a room of mortgage brokers and told them that their whole industry was going to collapse and that they would soon be out of a job. And that's kind of what Michael Saylor was telling this industry of gold mining executives, that their industry was going away and they soon would be out of a job. The difference is I was actually correct. My forecasts about what would happen to housing and subprime was exactly what ended up happening. In contrast, Michael Saylor couldn't have been more wrong because the opposite of what he forecast has already happened. When I did my mortgage banker's speech, I predicted a big drop in real estate prices, and that's exactly what happened. I predicted a blow up in subprime and a financial crisis, and that's exactly what happened. But what has happened to the price of Bitcoin since Michael Saylor told everybody in attendance at that conference to sell their gold and buy Bitcoin? Well, on the day of his speech, Bitcoin was trading above $60,000 a coin. It's now 73% below that price. In contrast, the gold that he wanted everybody to sell is only down by 4%. And of course, that's in U.S. dollars. In terms of every other currency in the world, the price of gold has gone up. So there were a lot of people at that Dubai conference that used the euro or the Japanese yen or the British pound as their reference currency. And so anybody a year ago at that conference who used their pounds or their euros or their yen and they converted them into gold, they're much better off. But anybody who bought Bitcoin with any currency, they're way worse off because Bitcoin lost so much more value than any fiat currency over that one year. Now, my talk is going to be very different than Michael Saylor's. One thing that we're going to have in common is I'm going to talk about all the flaws in the current fiat-based monetary system, and I'm going to talk about the end of the U.S. dollar's dominance of the global currency market and its role as the reserve currency. But what I believe is going to replace the dollar and Bitcoin is going to be gold-backed cryptocurrencies. That's what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about the real future of blockchain. It's not Bitcoin. It's not Ether. It's none of these fiat cryptocurrencies. It's going to be real cryptocurrencies backed by real money, gold, just like paper currency issued by private banks once functioned as money because it was backed by gold. The same thing is going to happen in the future. In fact, it's already happening right now. Private companies are going to issue digital currency backed by real money gold, except it's going to work much better now than it did in the 19th century because we have blockchain, because we have the Internet. We can make gold far more divisible, far more portable. It's now much better to have gold as a medium of exchange. Blockchain didn't lead to the extinction of gold, but the resurrection of gold. A lot of people now are talking about this Bitcoin winter. Maybe it's a Bitcoin ice age. Uh-uh. It's not a Bitcoin winter because winter implies there's a spring coming. There is no spring. It's not even an ice age because even the ice age ended after a couple of million years. This is an extinction event for Bitcoin. But when the dinosaurs became extinct, that gave rise to the mammal. Now, mammals were around when dinosaurs walked the earth, but they were just getting started. But once the dinosaurs were out of the way, the mammals were able to flourish. Now, what's been going on behind the scenes of these big dino cryptos 
there are a number of cryptos that are actually backed by real money, which is gold. And after the death of Bitcoin and all these other cryptos, these gold-backed cryptos are going to live on. They're going to thrive and they're going to dominate. So blockchain isn't dead. It will live on just like life lived on after the dinosaurs. It just wasn't the dinosaurs that lived on. It was another form of life. So blockchain will live on after Bitcoin and these other fiat tokens go extinct, but it's going to be a whole different breed that's going to dominate the earth. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like walking your dogs in public without securing them with a leash. Sure, most of the time you're probably fine, but what happens if one day your dogs run away and get dog napped? It's better to be careful, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, or airports, etc., your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. But ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so they can't do that. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. ExpressVPN works on all your devices, iPhones, laptops, tablets, even on your smart TV. And it's so easy to use. Just fire up the app and click one button and you're protected. In fact, an added benefit that I get by using ExpressVPN is I gain access to a lot of content that otherwise would be restricted based on my location. I'm here in Puerto Rico and a lot of websites do not allow access from Puerto Rico. But by firing up my ExpressVPN, I can fool those websites into thinking I'm in Florida rather than Puerto Rico and thereby gaining access to that content. And right now you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free at expressvpn.com slash gold. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. expressvpn.com slash gold. Also, now that I'm on the topic of asset-backed cryptos, one of the other asset-backed cryptos, although I use asset in quotes, that I think could be one of the next major blow-ups is Tether. Because unlike a cryptocurrency backed by real money, Tether is a cryptocurrency backed by fake money. U.S. dollars, fiat. So it doesn't represent any type of improvement over the U.S. dollar, other than the fact that maybe it makes it easier to use U.S. dollars in certain transactions, but it doesn't improve on the dollar as a store of value, which it's not. So Tether doesn't solve the store of value problem for the U.S. dollar like gold does. But I think a major problem is I don't even think Tether has the backing that it claims. I don't think there's one U.S. dollar on deposit for every one tether in circulation. And this could be the next major blow up. I don't know how many tethers are on the balance sheet of FTX or how much FTX debt is on the balance sheet of tether, but maybe FTX has tether and they're going to have to redeem their tether for real dollars to pay creditors, or maybe tether is going to have to mark down the value of their FTX assets that they own that are supposedly backing up the Tether in circulation. But I think a run on Tether could ultimately be much worse for the crypto market than the bankruptcy of FTX. As bad as that is, if Tether ends up being a fraud too, then it could be worse because nobody believed that Sam Bankman-Fried was a fraud. So if the king of crypto himself was a fraud, how many others out there are also frauds? Now, I never really paid much attention to the guy. I mean, I knew his name, but I never really looked into the stuff he was saying. But now that I've done that, because this has happened, 
oh my God. I mean, this could not have been more obvious. I don't see how anybody could have been dumb enough to trust this guy with any money. In hindsight, nothing could have been more obvious. But to me, if I would have actually bothered to look into this, I would have been talking about it from the beginning. The fact that people claim to have done their due diligence, yet still gave this guy money. You know, you have people like Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, a big investor. He's now claiming that we need more government regulation. He's demanding more government regulation. He's saying, I'm not going to invest in another company unless I know it's got the government's good housekeeping seal of approval. Look, Madoff had the government's seal of approval. What you need is not more government regulation, but do your own homework. Investors need to do real due diligence. Of course, they didn't do that because they were so drunk on all the cheap money that they were getting for the Federal Reserve. This is an example of the stupid decisions that people make when they're under the influence of all that monetary heroin. Trusting Sam Bankman-Fried with your money is nothing you could do sober. You have to be completely out of your mind. And that's what happened in crypto. Everybody was greedy. Everybody wanted to get rich. And so a lot of sophisticated players got behind this guy, and he was clearly a fraud. In fact, now we're seeing the evidence that this whole earn-to-give thing was a big fraud. That was part of his con trying to convince the world that he didn't even care about money. Even though he had billions and billions of dollars, maybe almost $20 billion net worth in theory, he didn't want any of that money. He was going to give it all away. Sure, it's easy to give away stolen money. I mean, that's a typical Democrat, right? He was a major Democratic donor, except he was donating stolen money. That's the deal. In fact, Democrats are very generous with other people's money. And I think one of the reasons that Bankman-Fried was donating to the Democrats, other than the fact that his parents were big Democratic donors, especially his mother, was because that's one of the ways you show you're a good person. You support the good guys, the guys that care, right? That's the Democrats. But the other way Bankman-Fried was showing that he cared is that he was going to give away all of his money. So supposedly he shared this small apartment with 10 roommates. He drove around in an old Toyota Corolla. He didn't spend any of his wealth on himself. He lived very frugally. Well, it turns out that was all part of the fraud because now his $40 million penthouse in Albany in the Bahamas is on the market. And this thing is as opulent as any penthouse I've ever seen. That's the way the guy really lived. He lived high on the hog. He was an extravagant spender of other people's money but money that he likely stole from his customers. That's the real Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, I know, look, everybody is innocent until proven guilty, so maybe he's got an explanation. So maybe that's not the case. We'll see. But so far, all the evidence that I've seen seems to point that that's exactly what was going on. But I want to take a moment to talk about the sheer nonsense of what Bankman-Fried was selling when it came to his desire to help everybody and kind of bragging about his generosity and his philanthropy, his saying was, you want to earn to give. That the real reason to go out and earn money was not to have a better life yourself, but so you had more money to give away to make other people's lives better. Now, that sounds great, right? He's this altruist. He's this saint. I mean, he doesn't care about money himself. He just wants money so he can give it away to other people. 
Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to get rich because you want a better life for yourself and your family. In fact, that is the driving force behind capitalism. It's not the altruists who end up creating a lot of wealth and inventing things that make people's lives better. It's the people that are out to get rich for themselves. That's the Adam Smith invisible hand. And the same thing works when it comes to capital accumulation. It is much better to invest your accumulated capital than simply give it away in charitable donations. Not that I'm against private charity. I'm all for it. In fact, I think all charity should be private. None of it should be coming from the government. But I don't think the best use of a wealthy person's money is charitable donations. Sure, if you don't have the ability to start a company or fund another company, if it's a choice between just spending your money yourself or donating it to worthy causes, then donate it to worthy causes. But the best way that you can help alleviate poverty is by increasing supply, not by increasing demand. Because that's what you do when you give somebody money, there's demand. And in fact, you're not necessarily increasing demand, you're diverting demand, or you're taking money out of savings that might otherwise have fed into additional supply, and you are converting that into demand. Think about what makes people poor. Why are people poor? It's because they don't have enough stuff. If the poor people had more stuff, they wouldn't be poor. If they had more food, if they had more clothes, if they had more shelter, if they had a car, whatever, if they had more stuff, they wouldn't be poor. Well, the natural condition of man is poverty. Think about the cavemen. They were all poor, right? They lived in caves, hence cavemen, and they spent all day hunting and gathering. They were all poor. So what lifted them out of poverty was inventions. It was capital that enabled greater production and more supply. That is the point that I was making in my book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. And if you haven't read that book, I would strongly suggest picking up a copy. It's based on my father's book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Doesn't. And it's a great way to express this concept. But getting back to my point on poverty is the way you make poor people less poor is to get them more stuff. Now, the government's solution to poor people not having enough stuff is to take the stuff away from rich people and give it to poor people. That may make the poor people better off initially, but in the long run, it doesn't do anything about alleviating poverty because that doesn't increase supply of goods. In fact, it actually decreases supply of goods in the future because you reduce the capacity and the incentive for the wealthier people whose money you stole to invest in increased production. Now, when you have charitable giving, that at least doesn't do nearly as much damage as taxation, but charitable giving is not adding to the supply of goods. It's just giving people money to buy some of the goods that already exist. The only way to lift people out of poverty is to increase the supply of stuff. If there's more stuff, there's less poverty. And so how do you get more stuff? Well, you need more capital. You need more businesses producing more stuff. And the more stuff we produce, the cheaper it gets and the easier it is for people to afford it. So the best way for guys that earn a lot of money to help people is to productively invest that money and to grow supply of goods. Don't simply donate it 
in charitable giving to increase demand for the existing supply, increase the supply through capital investment, that will bring down price and really bring down poverty. Bring down poverty over the long run. It's like that expression, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. That's what capitalism does with saving and investing. I don't want to feed the poor for a day. I want to feed them forever. And the way to do that is to produce more food. And how do you do that? With more savings and investments. So the concept that Sam Bankman-Fried was selling was a crock. But the reason he tried to be this altruistic do-gooder was so everybody would like him. Everyone would say, hey, this is a good guy because he's motivated not by his own greed, but by his desire to help other people. And he proved what a good guy he was by being the largest donor to Democratic politicians. Now, of course, he killed two birds with one stone. He made himself look like a real good guy for supporting the good guys, but also by paying off all these Democrats who were also in control of the White House and Congress. They probably looked the other way while he was perpetrating his fraud. But of course, now that the whole thing is blown up, they can't keep looking the other way. This is typical of the way the government acts. They never close the barn door while the horses are still there. They not only wait till the last horse is gone, they wait till you can't even see the last horse on the horizon before they close the doors. Getting back to crypto, though, ironically, while demand for fake money is falling, demand for real money, silver, is rising to the point that silver eagles are now trading at their highest premium on record relative to the value of their silver to the point where Shift Gold is running a special right now. And I wanted to point this out because I think everybody should take advantage of it because you can now turn in your silver eagles and exchange them for just regular bullion bars and end up with 30% more silver after covering all of your transaction costs. And so at the end of the day, when you have a silver eagle, what you really have is silver. And because those coins are now in such high demand and people are paying such a wide premium over the actual value of the silver contained in these coins, this is an excellent opportunity to take advantage of this because it's not going to be this way forever. But while it is, you can increase the ounces that you own by 30% which means that when silver ultimately makes a big move, when silver moves to $50 an ounce, $100 an ounce, $200 an ounce, which is where I think it's going, if you have 30% more silver when that happens, well, you're 30% better off. So take advantage while this arbitrage opportunity lasts and give Shift Gold a call and make sure and take advantage of this opportunity in silver. The number to call is 888-465-465. 3160. That's 1-888-GOLD-160. Or just visit the website shiftgold.com. But again, you got to act quickly because I'm not sure how much longer these wide premiums are going to last because other people may catch on and they're going to try to bring their silver eagles to market. And as that happens, then the premium is going to go down. This is how capitalism works. When you have a higher price, that brings sellers into the market. And I want to make sure that my customers are the first to sell because they get the high prices. But you don't want to sell your silver eagles for fiat. You want to sell your silver eagles for silver bullion. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking a little politics. First, a follow-up on the midterm elections. 
as I suspected when I did my last podcast, the Democrats went on to hold the Nevada Senate seat. The Republican was in the lead, but they hadn't finished counting all of the votes. And it looked to me at the time that based on which votes hadn't been counted, that the majority of those votes would end up going for the Democratic incumbent. And since the Democrats picked up that seat in Pennsylvania by holding that seat in Nevada, they're able to keep control of the U.S. Senate. And if they end up winning the special election in Georgia, which they are likely to win, then they'll actually have control of 51 seats. And so instead of sharing power with the Republicans and having the vice president as the tiebreaker, they'll actually have control of the Senate on their own. And interestingly enough, just like I pointed out, the difference in the Georgia election was the libertarian candidate. I believe that had that candidate not been in the race, Herschel Walker would have won. But I think in the runoff, even though it's only those two candidates in the race, without the gubernatorial race being part of the election, I just don't think the turnout is going to be the same. And so I think it'll be harder for Herschel Walker to win in the runoff than it would have been for him to have won in the general election if he only faced one opponent. It's a similar situation in Nevada, not just because there was a libertarian on the ballot, but because there was also an independent. And I checked out the website of this independent, and I looked at where he stood on the issues, and I thought that anybody who would vote for this guy, if their choice was between the Democrat and the Republican, based on where he stood on the issues, he had more in common with the Republicans than he did with the Democrats, which is also true of the Libertarians. So I think that had neither of these two third-party candidates been on the Nevada ballot, then the Republicans would have ended up winning Nevada instead of losing. So that's another situation where the third parties cost the Republicans the race. And I'm sure that had the people who voted Libertarian or Independent, had they been forced to choose between the lesser of the two evils, they would have picked the Republican. But because they voted Libertarian or Independent, they helped elect the Democrat, which not only impacted their own state, but impacted the nation because it tips the balance of power from the Republicans to the Democrats. Again, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are voting Libertarian. I'm a Libertarian at heart, and I would always vote Libertarian if I didn't think my vote would make a difference. But in a swing state, in a state where the election is close, then you can't do that. You can't just stand on principle. You have to take a more realistic approach and recognize that only two candidates have a chance of winning. And you might as well vote for the one who is closer to your ideal candidate, even if they're still far away. They're closer than the other guy who's even farther away. So sometimes you just have to hold your nose and vote for the lesser of two evils, because at the end of the day, the lesser of two evils, though still evil, at least it's lesser. Now, turning to the House of Representatives, as I said on my last podcast, it looked like the Republicans would hang on to the House. And as it stands right now, they are just one seat away from claiming the majority. There are 13 close races that have yet to be decided. But of those close races, the Republicans are currently leading in four. 
but they don't have to win four. They just have to win one and they get control. The only way the Democrats can keep control is a clean sweep. They would have to go 13 and 0 on those yet to be decided elections. To me, the odds there seem pretty low. So at least the Republicans have succeeded in flipping the House, albeit by a very narrow margin. But the big political news of the night is former President Donald Trump's announcement that he is going to run for a second term. And if he wins, he will be the only president other than Grover Cleveland, one of my all-time favorite presidents, to ever serve two non-consecutive terms in office. In his speech to announce his candidacy for presidency, he repeated the same lies he told when he still was president about presiding over the strongest economy in the history of the world. He's claiming that he handed Biden this pristine economy. It was in fantastic shape. Inflation was non-existent. We were energy independent. We were forcing China to pay all these tariffs. There was a resurgence in U.S. manufacturing. All the companies were moving from China to the United States, that we changed the dynamic on trade, that he was a president who, unlike other presidents, had kept his promises. Of course, none of this stuff is true. Now, Biden is a liar, too. I'm not saying that just Trump tells lies. Now, of course, a lot of this is just exaggeration, which was always typical of Donald Trump because he's a salesman. He's a showman. I used to compare the way he sold his presidency to the way he sold Trump stakes, because when he pitched the public on his stakes, he talked about how they're the greatest stakes in the world. Now, of course, they weren't, but because they were Trump stakes, they had to be the greatest. And so that's how he felt about the United States when he was president. If Trump was president, well, that must mean we have the greatest economy ever, because after all, how could it be anything other than the greatest economy ever with Trump president? Because Trump ran on a slogan of making America great again. And then he thought simply by virtue of his election that America was great again. But he never actually implemented the policies that were necessary to allow America to become great again. I loved Trump the candidate. I did not like Trump the president. The only place I think he actually did accomplish some stuff was in foreign policy, not in the tariffs, but in a lot of their other aspects of his foreign policy. But I thought that domestic policy was disaster. It's just that most Americans don't know that. And that is the best thing that he's got going for him in this campaign. Because a lot of people think we had a good economy when he left office, but we didn't. We just had a bigger bubble that hadn't popped yet. It didn't pop until Biden got in office. And all the inflation that Donald Trump is blaming on Joe Biden, it didn't start with Joe Biden. It didn't even start with Donald Trump. It's just that the inflation on Trump's watch was still mainly in financial assets. It was destined to move into consumer goods, and we would be grappling with the same inflation problem today, even if Donald Trump had been reelected. But he was fortunate enough to get out of Dodge, and so now the problems are going to be blamed on Biden, and he has an opportunity to win a second term where even if the problems continue in his second term, he can blame them on Biden. Now, of course, just like I voted for Donald Trump when he first ran for office, if I still was able to vote, which I can't do because I now live in Puerto Rico, I would choose the lesser of the two evils and I would vote for Trump. The difference is there's actually a lot of good people who have been fooled by Trump 
and who are supporting him. They're supporting him for the right reasons. I just wish that Donald Trump could actually deliver on his promises because America does have the potential to be great again. And a lot of the problems that Donald Trump accurately described in this speech that exists today existed while he was still president. And he hasn't done the things necessary to solve them. For example, he claims that all we have to do to bring down inflation is to bring down the price of gas. And we're going to do that when he repeals all these new regulations that the Biden administration has imposed that have strangled the American energy industry. But it's not that simple. Oil prices are going up in large part because of inflation. And you can't bring down inflation by trying to bring down oil prices. You have to cut government spending, something that he never did. Government spending increased dramatically while Trump was president. He signed increases in welfare spending and warfare spending, and he pounded the table for more inflation. As the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates, he was bashing his own appointee, Jerome Powell, threatening to fire him if he didn't stop hiking interest rates. He wanted Powell to cut rates. He wanted negative rates. He wanted more quantitative easing. Well, we are suffering the consequences of quantitative easing of those low interest rates. And as soon as COVID came, Trump was a leader in demanding more stimulus, more government spending. He wrote the playbook for COVID that Biden followed as soon as he went into office. Now, of course, Biden would have done it anyway. It's not like Biden couldn't have come up with those plays. It's the same plays that Democrats have been using for generations, except the problem is Trump went back to that playbook. He didn't try to write a new playbook of free market economics. He didn't really deliver the change that he ran on. He didn't try to make America great again. He repeated all the failed policies that caused America to lose her greatness in the first place. So if I were to vote for Trump the second time, I wouldn't do it nearly as enthusiastically as I did it the first time, although I still didn't really know if Donald Trump was going to preside the way he campaigned. I was taking a shot, but I figured, what the hell, I had nothing to lose. And it turned out that he disappointed me. But now that I've already seen the way Trump acts as a president, if I were to vote for him, it wouldn't be with any hope that he might do the right thing if he got a second chance. It would simply be because, as I said earlier, he's not nearly as bad as Joe Biden. That just shows you how bad Biden actually is. And at least I think that there may be a chance that if Donald Trump surrounds himself with the right people, he may, in fact, stumble into doing the right thing. There is no chance that Joe Biden will ever be surrounded by the right people. So there is no chance that he will ever do the right thing. Of course, there's no guarantee that Trump is going to win the Republican nomination because ever since the red wave failed to emerge, During the midterm elections, Ron DeSantis, his principal opponent for that nomination, had surged in the betting odds. And so now, if you look at Predicted.com, they're pretty much even money. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are tied, and everybody else is far in the dust. This should be a competitive campaign. I'm not sure there's any oxygen left for anybody else to enter the fray, so it may just be Trump-DeSantis. And with only one opponent in the race, it may be very difficult for Donald Trump to win. Now, to the extent that a lot more people enter the race, they're more likely to divide the DeSantis vote than the Trump vote. 
because Trump backers are likely extremely loyal and they're going to stay with Trump. However, DeSantis supporters may be more likely to be picked off by other competitors who enter the race later. The only thing that we know for sure is that this campaign is going to be very entertaining. So grab your popcorn.